Donald Trump is demonstrating that he is a uniquely dangerous individual to be in the White House. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, The Bradcast, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, Full Frontal with Samantha B, and Amicus from Slate. This election season, Trump has warned the electorate to fear a long list of things, including illegal immigrants, apocalypse at the hands of ISIS, and now, dead people voting. They even want to try to rig the election at the polling booths. And believe me, there's a lot going on. People that have died 10 years ago are still voting. What Trump's talking about is voter fraud, the keystone of his claims that the election will be rigged. But Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law and author of the book The Fight to Vote, says, don't worry. In-person voter impersonation, which is what Trump is talking about, is vanishingly rare. One study for The Washington Post looked at a billion ballots cast over the past decade and found 31 documented examples of in-person voter impersonation. Even before Trump started running his mouth, this bogeyman of voter fraud has been presented at least as a pretext to pass all sorts of voter ID laws. We have on the books right now about 15 new laws in this election that would make it harder for many Americans to vote in one way or another for the first time since the Jim Crow era. And voter fraud has been used as the justification for these laws that really hit minority communities the hardest that hit young people. And recently there were documents leaked from an investigation of Governor Scott Walker and his political operation around a judicial election. It was actually a campaign finance investigation. But in the middle of these documents, there's an email from one of his political aides to the other folks saying, well, it looks like this election isn't going to go so well for our candidate. Should we start claiming voter fraud now or wait till people actually vote? <laughs> I say we start now and they all write back, you know, some version of, you know, good idea. You know, over and over again, you hear these allegations and they evaporate upon contact with any investigation. But they're the pretext. The notion of voter fraud was not invented out of whole cloth. There was a day back in the latter part of the 19th century when Tammany Hall, the great boss tweed political machine that essentially governed New York City, made pretty sure that everything was going to turn out just fine on election day. Politicians have wanted to stuff the ballot box ever since senators wore togas. In the 20th century, Lyndon Johnson winning his first Senate race when they, quote, discovered a box of votes cast in a southern Texas town called Alice, Texas, where 200 votes had been cast all for Lyndon Johnson in alphabetical order. <laughs> and that was enough to win him the Senate. They called him Landslide Lyndon. There's always a risk of misconduct. But in all these instances, it was, in a sense, what we would call election fraud. It was not stray individual voters walking in and pretending to be someone else. It was the politicians or the people on the other side of the table stuffing the ballot box or rigging things. 
even today there are risks with voting machines and there are greater risks with absentee ballot where you can't see the person casting the vote. But the specific thing that Donald Trump is railing against doesn't happen. I noticed that Trump has homed in particularly on inner city Philadelphia, where he has said that the ghost voters are just going to be out of control. He did not mention the outlying western Philadelphia suburbs, which are also reliably blue, but also almost entirely white. Rudy Giuliani, his surrogate, said explicitly, oh, this happens in the inner cities. And Trump has pointed to Philadelphia. And there's a not very far below the surface racial subtext to all of this. There's an interesting psychological study that was done a couple of years ago where members of the public were asked what their position was on something like voter ID laws. And they were shown a photograph of a voter. In some instances, the voter was black casting a vote and some white. And for white respondents, their support for voter ID laws went up when the photo was of a black person voting. We have a long, long and unfortunate history in our country of the racial divisions playing out in these election contexts. And this is going to go in the history books as one of those moments. If increasing percentages of the electorate no longer have faith in the security and, and sanctity of the voting process, where does that leave us? There have been fights over voting going back forever, but I can't think of a time except maybe in the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln where one of the parties said, well, these results are not going to be legitimate and we're not going to necessarily accept them. Interestingly, you're seeing a number of Republican officials who run these elections in about 30 states say, no, it's not rigged. No, look, there really isn't a lot of voter fraud. I hope that's an inflection point because so many of those same officials have used that fear to justify laws that don't make sense. Maybe now we can all agree on those facts and, and then move on to better policies. I'll fight the man that turns on me if I must fight or die. I will fight for justice in laws I can abide. I'll try to fight with courage to always give my best. For I must fight the fear itself that grows inside my breast. Fear is a villain. Grips you late at night, he'll catch you when your back is turned, he's watching you. In March of 2015, to mark the 50th anniversary of the Bloody Sunday March for Voting Rights in Selma, Alabama, and the subsequent passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, President Barack Obama stood at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma with former President George W. Bush by his side and dozens of elected officials and members of Congress in attendance. And he called for the restoration of the Voting Rights Act, which the U.S. Supreme Court had substantively gutted in 2013's Shelby County ruling, heading us straight towards the first presidential election in 50 years that would be run without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. And with effort, we can protect the foundation stone of our democracy for which so many marched across this bridge, and that is the right to vote.
right now, in 2015, 50 years after some, there are laws across this country designed to make it harder for people to vote. As we speak, more such laws are being proposed. Meanwhile, the Voting Rights Act, the culmination of so much blood, so much sweat and tears, the product of so much sacrifice in the face of wanton violence, the Voting Rights Act stands weakened. Its future subject to political rancor. How can that be? The Voting Rights Act was one of the crowning achievements of our democracy, the result of Republican and Democratic efforts. President Reagan signed its renewal when he was in office. President George W. Bush signed its renewal when he was in office. 100 members of Congress have come here today to honor people who are willing to die for the right to protect it. If we want to honor this day, let that hundred go back to Washington and gather 400 more and together pledge to make it their mission to restore that law this year. That's how we honor those on this bridge. That was President Obama on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, uh, 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, and the the march for the right to vote. Of course, Republicans in Congress refused to answer that call. And more than a dozen GOP-controlled states implemented restrictions that made it more difficult to vote in the 2016 election. But while Republicans in Congress refused to act, what was the corporate media's excuse for not covering the consequences of all of this before the election, about which they were so obsessed? On horse race matters, at least, if not on substance. After all, voting rights affects the horse race as much as anything. And here, here you had uh, two presidents of the U.S. gathered to call on lawmakers uh, to fix what the U.S. Supreme Court had so badly broken just two years earlier, back in March of 2015. So did all of these new restrictions on voting passed by Republicans in Republican states, did all of that help lead to the still puzzling results that we saw on Tuesday when turnout was the lowest that we have seen in more than 15 years. Here to discuss all of this uh, is one of the few folks in the media who did not ignore this issue, who did as much as anyone could to try and get the word out about the disastrous effects of gutting the Voting Rights Act uh, this year in state after state for voter after voter, no matter who, no matter who they had hoped to vote for and no matter whether the results might have an effect on any particular election, be it for president or school board or dog catcher. The fight to vote and the right to vote still matters in this country, or at least it should, a hell of a lot more than our corporate media whose job, whose responsibility it is to inform and educate the electorate, seems to have been abandoned once again this year. Ari Berman is a contributing writer for The Nation magazine and author of the landmark new book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, cited by The New York Times as one of the best books of last year, documenting the uniquely American and all too harrowing and continuing tale of the minority fight to simply cast a vote in this country. And given what happened this year, I suspect the next print edition will need to include several new chapters, unfortunately. Ari Berman, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Hey, Brad, thank you for having me. 
Uh, well, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, listen, first of all, let me just offer my thanks uh, for your tireless efforts uh, and, frankly, heroic efforts this year to try and get the word out about what was going on and affecting so many voters simply trying to cast a vote, to participate in their own representative democracy. Uh, some of them who had, who had, who had done so for, for decades and finally found that they could not, all of a sudden, since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, uh, they couldn't do so this year. So before we get into some of the specifics of, of whatever effect all of this may have played on the outcome of last Tuesday's election, I shared a lot of your reporting here, Ari, over the past many months. So many of those stories that you told were heart-wrenching at times. Was there one personal story that struck you in this new fight for voting rights uh, uh, more than another that you can share with us today? Well, thank you so much for for the kind words, Brad, and, and thank you for all you've done on this as well. Um, there there have been a lot of of crazy stories mm-hmm. um, that I told before the election. I went back and and looked over all of them. I, I think the one story that that stuck with me the most was this uh, guy by the name of Eddie Lee Holloway Jr., mm-hmm. who was a 58 year old African American man who moved from Illinois in Chicago to Milwaukee um, in Wisconsin. And he tried to get a Wisconsin photo ID to be able to vote. And he went to the DMV and he brought his uh, Illinois photo ID, his Social Security card, um, and his birth certificate. But they did not give him an ID because his birth certificate, instead of saying Eddie Lee Holloway Jr., said Eddie Jr. Holloway instead because of a clerical error when it was issued. So he had the same first name, the same last name, mm. he had other documents that supported who he was, but they said they couldn't give him an ID for voting because his birth certificate was different. So they said, go to the vital records office downtown in Milwaukee. He went down there, he you know, said, how much will it cost to amend my birth certificate? They said between 400 and $600. So he, he paid for his own bus ride back to Illinois, where he was from. He went to oh. the vital records office in Illinois and he said, I want to amend my birth certificate. And they told him he needed to bring his high school and his vaccination records to be able to do this. It's such a crazy story. Then he went to Decatur, where he was from, mm-hmm. got, his, got his high school records, amazingly, went back to Springfield. Then they told him he had to get his full Social Security statement. He went back to Wisconsin. He got all his documents in order. He... he, uh, he talked to Illinois Vital Records. He said, can I email or fax you my information? He said, no, you have to come back in person. And at that point, he just gave up on trying to get the photo ID he needed in Wisconsin to be able to vote. So this one guy made seven different trips to two different states and spent $200 of his own money just trying to get an ID to vote, and he wasn't able to. And I, I asked his lawyer, because a lot of this story came from an ACLU deposition, I asked his lawyer did Eddie ever get an ID for voting in Wisconsin? And his lawyer told me he moved back to Illinois. Um, so he, he, it's just such an incredible story that, you know, this, this guy spent all this time. He'd been 58 years old. He'd voted all his life and he wasn't able to vote in Wisconsin. He was so frustrated. He ended up going back to Illinois. So that was, that was one of those lazy voters we heard about who, uh, just won't take the effort to get the ID that they need under, and, and that's what's so annoying about it. Everyone says, well, why didn't he have an ID? He had an ID. Right. He had an ID from Illinois. He had an ID he needed to do everything else, to buy liquor, 
to go on a plane, yep. to do all of these things that people claim you can't do without an ID. He had an ID. Yep. And he had supporting documentation to show who he was. You could have easily looked at his Social Security card or his birth certificate and figured out this is the same person. So it's so crazy. And then the fact that there's people who spend all of this effort. I mean, how many people would give up after they went to one place, um, let alone going to seven different places? So um, this whole narrative, the the ways that people have justified voter suppression has been really, to me, the most disturbing disturbing aspect of this whole process. Oh, I want freedom, the mother cries. I need something good to eat, the most selfishness and greed and lies. I don't really want to fight, I just want what's right. We all know what's right. We'll probably never know how many people were kept from voting in this year's election uh, thanks to the Republicans' campaign of voter suppression that was particularly uh, virulent in the South. But we do know already that the GOP is very impressed with their efforts and uh, what they were able to accomplish. So we have some excerpts from the North Carolina GOP's report on voting in this week's election. Uh, They note that uh, African-American early voting was down 8.5% from, uh, this is prior to the election, uh, from this time in 2012. And Caucasian voters, early voting is up 22.5% from this time in 2012. And lest you think that this is one of those, like, like a Pew raw data dump, where it's 50 pages of breaking down every cross section. No, no, no. This is like one page. That's literally what they had is, Here's the African Americans and here's the Caucasians. Oh, thank God, the numbers are looking good for us. Uh, they go on to say, as a share of early voters, African Americans are down 6%, and Caucasians are up 4.2%. Uh, they titled it North Carolina Obama Coalition Crumbling. That's not a title that we put on it, that's in this section in their report. And so they say, oh, yes. Obama's coalition is going down. Those African-Americans aren't voting anymore. This is amazing. And uh, if for some reason you're watching this show and you don't give a damn about African-American voting rights, you might be young. So let's move on to this next section. Uh, age less than 36 are, are technically up 50,000 voters. However, their vote share has declined by a percentage point down to 20.4%. And uh, the older voters has gone up to 24.6%. So they were very glad that fewer young people were voting as well in North Carolina. Uh, now, why might it be? Well, there's lots of good reasons that people didn't go out to vote, and we've, we've detailed them with Hillary Clinton and her campaign and all that up until this point. But we also know that in North Carolina, amongst other states, there were numerous efforts to uh, make voter ID laws more restrictive, to shut down polling places, to eliminate uh, time for, for early voting. Um, in fact, during a major voting rights lawsuit decided back in July, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, noted that the state eliminated Sunday voting specifically because the voters who used it were disproportionately black and democratic. So let's give perspective here. So I, I get it. Blacks vote a lot more for Democrats than they do for Republicans. If you're a Republican um, and you, all, you care about your own interests, you might not want a lot of African Americans to vote. That's not, I get it, that's not irrational, right? But there's a difference between, hey, boy, I hope not a lot of black voters show up because they're not likely to vote for a Republican, and let me shut down their polling stations. Yeah. There's all the difference in the world. And so 
conservatives think that way, and, and then you will. Some conservatives might do projection and go, "Well, you liberals think the same way." No, we don't. So it has never occurred. I, in fact, the first time it occurred to me was while you were reading this this story today, John. Right now, yeah. I thought, like liberals, the idea of wanting to shut down white voters, yeah, <laughs> like, like uh, no. So polling stations I talked about before, like the idea, like, oh, I hope not a lot of white voters show up. <laughs> it's never occurred to me, right? Yeah. Because you know why? I want everybody to vote. And and by the way, I, I get into fights with other Democratic groups because some of them are like, hey, you know what? We we don't want the Republicans taking advantage of the system. What do you mean? That's not taking advantage of the system. That's going out and vote. That's taking advantage of democracy, yeah. which they should, <laughs> right? Taking advantage so, of your rights, right? So I want white people voting. I want black people. I want everybody voting, right? If you're a decent American, you should. Now again, if you say, "Well, I know, but it, I know they're going to vote against me," mm-hmm. golly gee, I hope more white people show up. Yeah. Okay, it's not a great thing to hear. It's not a great sentence. I understand a little bit better. But when you take action yes. to make sure that their polling stations are closed, so it's more difficult for them to vote, and then you brag about it. Yeah. Well, then we have real constitutional issues. Yeah, and look, it's easy, as you said, to, to look at a particular demographic and say they are probably not going to vote for us. Maybe put a little bit of thought into, maybe I could do something to get some of them to vote for me. Mm. Maybe I'm a goddamn politician, I'm a fucking adult, and I can actually propose some policies or give an inspiring speech, perhaps reassess my values, and get those people to move over and to support us. But they decided to go in a different way. and. Um, so we, we showed uh, before the election how many polling places have been shut down. Uh, voter suppression was just terrible throughout this year. Uh, good luck repairing the Voting Rights Act because we're going to have a conservative Supreme Court for the next couple of decades. Um, but we know that this election was extremely close, and there were states that were within one percentage point. There was uh, Michigan was 0.3%. Man, you don't think that these sorts of laws could move 0.3% of the electorate? If not for voter suppression, that's another thing that you can add to the long list of things that probably swayed this election. And it's always one-sided. The Republicans do it all the time, and the Democrats never answer. Yep. So they they go to the courts. You should because they're, this is a violation of the Constitution. Uh, but but they never fight back and go, okay, if you're going to shut down polling stations, I'm going to shut down polling stations. I don't want any polling stations shut down. Yeah. But. So the Democrats, I really don't want mine shut down because it's yeah. super close. I can walk to it. Right, but the Democrats, it doesn't even occur to them to fight back. No. So they're just like, oh, I guess there's nothing we can do. We lost again. Yeah. Oh, we had the popular vote and lost the electoral college again. <laughs> okay, I guess let's go yeah. home and do nothing. Well, you're. I mean, you're sort of joking because um, we're. That's part of our our therapy here. Um, but there is a way to fight back that does not involve doing the same thing. You can fight fire with with water, actually. So if they're suppressing the vote, you strengthen the vote. You secure the vote. You make uh, voting uh, the vote uh, election day a holiday. You do automatic registration. You do federal uh, mandates. On, and I know it's difficult, and it would be a lot of work. Obviously, we have a system that's multi-level. Uh, but that protects uh, voting, uh, early voting, uh, mail voting, and things like that. There's a lot that Barack Obama and the Democrats at the federal level could have done to protect the vote from these sorts of uh, abuses. No, John, that'd be kind of hard. That'd be difficult.
And then we got to fight back against Republicans. I'm just going to let it play out and see what happens. And that's your Senator Wise Boy saying, Heard as his corporate empires exploit your world, enslave masses of people, destroy the earth, and invite him for Granny to share a smirk. And that's not much to say. There's not much for him to say. Ah, the holidays. It's a season of spending time with families and at the post office. Uh, Of course, with Stamps.com, you can avoid all of the hassle of going to the post office during this busy holiday season because everything you would do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, and then just have the mail carrier pick it up. I used to use Stamps.com back in my glory days of nearly no responsibility. I had nothing but time on my hands, so I I would master the art of procrastination and slacking off, but I could also cut corners with the best of them to compensate. In business, it's called efficiency. So whether you've got an eBay store to support your video gaming habit like I did as a teenager, or a mail-order business that supports your family... Stamps.com can help you cut that corner of making all those trips to the post office to get some of your precious time back. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code BEST for this special offer, a four-week free trial plus a $110 bonus offer including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait, go to Stamps.com and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in BEST. That's Stamps.com, enter Best. There's not much to say. There's not much for him to say. We got a team of speech writers locked in a room somewhere, proposing a magnificent document for him to read in front of you. On the line with us, Professor Mark Crispin Miller, Professor of Media Studies at New York University, author of Fooled Again, the Real Case for Electoral Reform. His website, markcrispinmiller.com and electiondefense.org. You can tweet him at M. Crispin Miller. Uh, Mark, welcome. Welcome back. It's been a while. I know. It's been too long, Tom. It's great to talk to you again. Great to talk to you, too. So tell us about NEDC. Yeah, the National Election Defense Coalition is a a group that's, uh, as far as I know, the only one out there that's really working for uh, comprehensive reform of our country's abysmal voting system. They're concerned not just about uh, the various tricks and tactics used to suppress the vote, you know, voter caging, purging people's names from voter rolls, voter ID requirements, and so on, but they're equally concerned about uh, the other category of um, election theft, which is computerized election fraud. That's something that the press and, and both parties have long laughed off as conspiracy theory. Uh, But by now there is voluminous specific evidence that this kind of thing is not only possible, but but actually has happened. Uh, The National Election Defense Coalition is is working uh, very, very um, diligently and intelligently to solve this problem. Uh, They're helping uh, some righteous members of the House craft hard-hitting legislation uh, in Congress. They are engaged in uh, public education, and crucially, they're, they're, they're working along with activists for civil rights, environmental justice, and uh, climate balance, because they've gotten those people to understand that if we don't have a, a, a genuinely uh, democratic, fair, and honest voting system in this country, we're not going to make progress on any front. 
I think that's a key uh, perception, and it's one that the coalition gets. So I'm I'm uh, trying to help them spread the word about the work they're doing. So the the their website is. Uh, I think it's electiondefense.org. Dot, dot okay, that's the election defense website. Great. Yeah, and so and people should go ahead. Just let me add. They, at my at my suggestion, they just put up a donations uh, page, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think the, their work is so righteous and so necessary. We cannot go through uh, uh, any more elections like this one. I'm sure you'll agree with that. Yeah. This has got to stop. And and one uh, the most important way to stop that is is to establish uh, a legitimate voting system. Yeah, yeah. And what would that look like in your mind? Well, um, okay, it would involve uh, doing away with computerized voting and computerized vote counting. Uh, It would involve uh, banning the participation of private companies in our voting system. We have a system that's computerized and privatized so that in in two ways it's completely inappropriate for any country that calls itself a democracy – we should uh, turn instead of you know relying on private companies to count the vote and then tell us what the numbers are. We should turn to uh, hand counted paper ballots, ballots counted out in the open, which is the kind of thing we see in many other. Uh, it's what they do in Canada. It's it's why it took a day in the UK for them to count the Brexit vote. Well, that's right, and and it's worth noting you know that the Netherlands and Ireland and Germany all had brief flirtations with electronic voting and all gave it up uh, and returned to hand-counted paper ballots. Now, let me add that there is also another uh, um, legitimate means of counting the votes that that election integrity activists have been looking into. It's digital ballot images. People should do a search on that phrase. It turns out that that, uh, most electronic uh, machines are capable of generating uh, a ballot image that can actually function as a kind of, um, uh, you know, trustworthy marker of how people voted. As an audit trail. Uh, well, yes. And, and what's striking and troubling about this is that, that the activists who have been requesting election officials all over the country to make these images available have been digging in their heels and refusing. Okay. Hmm. This, this is one sign of, of um, you know, possible malfeasance malfeasance in this election, I think that the two methods are not mutually exclusive. Hand-counted paper ballots and or digital ballot images, uh, either one, possibly both, would be a vast improvement on the system we have now. Let me add, uh, it's also, I think, imperative that people be automatically registered to vote on their 18th birthdays. That would be an extremely simple thing to do. And it would get rid of all this uh, Jim Crow stuff, you know, interfering with voter registration and so on. And we should also make uh, Election Day a national holiday. Everybody should be voting on Election Day. And that's very important. I mean, I I, I appreciate uh, people's enthusiasm about early voting. Uh, On the face of it, it's a very good idea. But, you know, since a high turnout is a very effective – way to counter efforts to steal elections, it seems to me an unwise thing to, to dilute the effect of high turnout by spreading it out over, you know, days or weeks before Election Day. So I think that, you know, rather than have this sort of um, chaotic system of different kinds of early voting systems from state to state, we really ought to just, you know, bite the bullet and make Election Day a national holiday 
which wouldn't take any more, I don't think, than an executive order by the president. Hmm. Interesting. Or at the very worst, an act of Congress. I mean, you know, it's uh, if they can name a post office, they can make <laughs> they, they can create national holidays, right? So, yeah, it's good stuff. I'm Professor, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Mark. I just wanted to say, uh, you know, I'm grateful for your making that point about an act of Congress because both parties uh, are, are guilty of letting the situation slide to the point we're at now. Neither one of them, strangely, seems to have much of an investment in improving the system, uh, to put it mildly. So this is something that, that uh, you know, we the people, to use a quaint phrase, really have to push for uh, with, with real revolutionary vigor because the two parties and the media – uh, are for some reason dead set against an honest uh, recognition of what's going on here and uh, appropriate steps to, to fix the problem. Everybody knows, everybody knows that it's in the fixes, The major questions being debated in our country today is whether it's okay for the president to lie his fucking face off 24 hours a day. Somehow, the jury is still out on that. What do you do when he says something like millions of voters voted illegally in California when you know that that's not true? Well, I don't know if that's not true, John. There is no evidence. When you're president, can you just offer a theory that has no evidence behind it, or does he have to tighten up his standards of proof? I think he's done a great job. You do? Okay, guess that answers my next question. Is it okay for the White House Chief of Staff to lie his fucking face off? I'll put you down for a yes. How could anyone believe three million undocumented Californians would get up early and risk arrest and deportation to perform an onerous task we can't even get our own citizens to do? Okay, point taken. For the record, Massive voter fraud is a lie, but this lie didn't spring Athena-like from Donald's collapsing pumpkin of a head. He's a marketer. His big lies are like his buildings. He doesn't build them. He just slaps his brand on them and tricks the press into promoting them for free. I'm sure they'll stop taking the bait any day now. Where does that three million number come from? Two places. One, a study which was widely rebutted, even by the managers of the opt-in web survey it's based on, and whose authors said Trump had misread their results as proof of massive voter fraud, though I'm not sure about that misreading theory. <laughs> the other source? I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Of course, noted Sandy Hook truther and moon landing denier Alex Jones, who despite protests got approval to build a bullshit pipeline straight into the president-elect's brain. The secretary of chemtrails got his three million figure from the proceedings of the academy of some dude on Twitter, who totally has data to back up his claim, but you can't see it because it lives in Canada. Greg Phillips is the creator of Vote Stand, an app that lets anyone document suspicious activity at polling places and report it to just Greg. He'll probably tell the election board or something. 
cool app. I wish it had a better name, though. How about... Um... Pokemon go to the polls. That's great. How did she lose the youth vote? But Greg didn't invent the lie either. To understand where it came from, we have to go back decades to the eve of Reagan's election when Heritage Foundation founder and plus-size forehead model Paul Weyrich gave his I have a dream speech. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. By those standards, I guess the best American election yet was the one in 2000. Look, I get it. That's just politics. Republicans win if they keep people from voting, especially Democrat people. But how do you look at a group of voters and pick out the Democrat? <laughs> Gosh, if only there were some way to tell them apart. There are right now 20 plus states imp implementing voter restrictions to try to take to, to reduce the number of people who can vote, which we know will have a disproportionate impact on poor and minority communities, including black people. We cut Obama by 5%, uh, which was big. And he beat McCain by 10%, he only beat uh, Romney by 5%. I think that probably voter ID had a, a helped a bit in that. Just, just shut up, shut up! You can't say what voter ID is really for. If you want to sell something slightly shameful, you need to package it as a cure for something else. <laughs> And that is how Republicans discovered a national epidemic of neck pain, a.k.a. voter fraud. Stealing your vote? Alarming reports of voter fraud are running rampant right now. Drug money even said to be involved. And the reality is voter fraud is rampant uh, across this country. I don't think there's voter fraud. I know there was voter fraud. So you're talking about probably over a million people that voted twice in this election. The first concrete evidence we've ever had of massive voter fraud. Two questions. One, did you have your makeup done at the American Girl doll store? <laughs> And two, how do you find concrete evidence of a thing Republicans made up? Electoral officials in 27 states have launched a massive new campaign against voter fraud. They are using a computer name matching system to claim that more than 3 million citizens may be registered to vote in more than one state. Now, the lists are based on common names like John Jackson or David Lee. System, the only people safe from voter purging are Whoopi Goldberg and Yahoo Serious. <laughs> if Trump manages to smash America's institutions, it will only be because GOP termites have been gnawing away at the foundation for years with baseless claims of election shenanigans. Remember, all the party wanted was an excuse to pass voter restrictions. But once you put a lie out there, it grows and takes on a life of its own. You want to know what your little fib did? Behold. Voting is a privilege in this country, and you need to be legal, not like California, where three million illegals voted. So where are you getting your information? From the media. Where well, else media? media? Some of it was CNN, I believe. CNN and said that three million illegal people voted well, in Well, it was coming California? all across the media. I don't know. Maybe I heard it here. Maybe here. It was on a screen, and it activated my endorphins, so it must be true. Now, if you'll just excuse me, I'll just forward it to all my nieces and nephews. I mean, unless someone I trust tells me it's bullshit. Trump tweeted in the last week or so that 
he had actually won the popular vote if you deduct the millions who voted illegally. Do you believe that? I don't know. I, I'm not really focused on these things. And send. Oh, what's Pizzagate? Pick up my guitar and play. Just like yesterday. If you're looking to hire a new employee, you've got a big job ahead of you. You have to know where to post the job listing to find the best candidates, and there's over a hundred job sites out there. If you want to find the perfect hire, you should really post on all of the job sites, which sounds easy enough, right? Uh, but now, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job opening to over 100 job sites plus social media networks like Facebook and Twitter with a single click. And with ZipRecruiter, you don't have to juggle all of the incoming emails and calls either. Just quickly screen the candidates in the system, rate them, and hire the right person fast from right within ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. They've got great recruiting tips as well to help you write the most effective job postings possible. Fun fact, if you write your job listing with gender neutral wording, you'll get 42% more responses on average. I just learned that from ZipRecruiter. And here you might have thought that identity politics was annoying and useless, but now it's helping your business. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses and let them help you stamp out gender bias in your hiring process. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Another elector has now added their name to the list of those who, who pledge not to support Donald Trump on the 19th of this month when the Electoral College electors get together and actually choose who's going to be president. We had our fake little election where millions more people voted for Hillary Clinton. But Trump is set to become president unless enough of these electors choose not to. And some of them are calling themselves the Hamilton electors, and they're saying that they instead are going to rally around some other Republican alternative to Donald Trump. Now, in this case, we have Christopher Supran, who is saying that he is not going to cast his vote for Donald Trump, and he wrote an editorial explaining why in the New York Times. I'm going to read just a few short little excerpts from it. He says, I do not think presidents-elect should be disqualified for policy disagreements. I do not think they should be disqualified because they won the Electoral College instead of the popular vote which I think is a good reason why they might. Uh, but however, now I am asked to cast a vote on December 19th for someone who shows daily he is not qualified for the office. Electors of good... By the way, he goes on to list a number of ex uh, extremely good reasons why Donald Trump is not qualified. So look that up on the New York Times. But in the sort of finale to it, he says, electors of conscience can still do the right thing for the good of the country. Presidential electors have the legal right and a constitutional duty to vote their conscience I believe electors should unify behind a Republican alternative as an honorable and qualified man or woman such as Governor John Kasich of Ohio. I pray my fellow electors will do their job and join me in discovering who that person should be. Fifteen years ago, I swore an oath to defend my country and constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. On December 19th, I will do it again. Okay, if you're, wondering if, you're wondering if he's a real uh, Republican, 
so he praises George W. Bush, says, look, he was imperfect, but he was a patriot and did the right things for the country. Wrong. He talks about, yeah, well, that's who he is. Wrong. <laughs> and he says he looks, he thinks America should be that shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan talked about. And he mentions that, look, there was 50 Republican, former national security officials and foreign policy experts who said that Trump would, quote, be a dangerous president. Yeah. We're so that. the reason these guys are called Hamilton electors is because Alexander Hamilton wrote Federalist 68 that said part of the reason we have the electoral college is in case the elector, in case the uh, the voters made a mistake and they've t chosen someone who's in the pockets of a foreign government, hmm, mm. investments abroad that he mm. uh, bases his decisions on, and that's in the Constitution, by the way, um, and or he is dangerously incompetent, etc. Uh, we have this electoral college. Now, the downside of an electoral college is you don't get real democracy because even if you win the popular vote, you might lose. Huh, kind of like what happened now. But the upside is if you're a buffoon, the electors will make sure that you're not, you don't actually take office. Yeah. So this Republican is saying, yeah, let's do that. And I mean, if you like the electoral college and you say, well, it doesn't matter who won the democracy, it doesn't matter who won the popular vote, we have the electoral college. That's yeah. true, but you forgot about the second half of the Electoral College yeah. and why it was created. You should read Federalist 68. Yeah, and if your response to this sort of thing is to say, well, how dare they vote for someone else? He won. I don't know what definition of winning you have there then, because in the only alternative case, the popular vote, he's down by like 2.4 million votes now. In fact, it looks like there's a good chance that Hillary Clinton might end up getting more votes than Barack Obama did by the time this is done. And so if he didn't win the popular vote, and if under this case he doesn't win the Electoral College vote, what the hell did he win then? Mm. He won hypothetically an early stage of the Electoral College. Now look, we're going to go over a couple other angles of this. I will say that I personally am not 100% sold on people making the sort of unilateral decision to go against the popular vote. So if the Electoral College decided, you know what, screw the popular vote, we're going to vote for instead someone else that we want, that I think is, should not happen. But if what they end up doing is try to get the result of the Electoral College vote a little bit closer to the popular vote, I think there's a lot of good, not just pragmatic reasons for that to happen, but as they've pointed out, sort of philosophical baked into the Constitution and the, and the founding uh, fathers' thoughts, uh, reasons why they might do that. And if the Electoral College was set up to stop a crazy person from becoming president, which is one interpretation of why it did, um, it's not the only. I don't know, if it doesn't stop Donald Trump, then we should dispense with that idea because clearly it's not capable of doing that. It has never had as clear-cut a case of a person who is not qualified to become president and is a unique danger to the continuation of America as a general concept and American democracy as it has functioned. He is that unique danger. And so if they are going to stop anyone, it is Donald Trump. It has never been anyone before. It will never be anyone as dangerous as Donald Trump. So I'm not a big believer in the elites, and if you watch the Young Turks, you know that. So I'm against superdelegates. I'm against uh, the, a system based on electors knowing better uh, yeah. than the general population. But in this case, they're not saying they know better than the general population. The general population voted for Hillary Clinton. So we've got this catch-22 here for Trump supporters where, well, the point of the Electoral College is to sometimes do this, to make sure a clown yeah. doesn't get in office. And if you don't like it, then you got the popular vote. So now look, is it gonna happen? 
Well, they're one down, 36 to go. They need uh, 37 Republican electors to do this. And by the way, as I explained on the show yesterday, one option is they vote for who won the popular vote, and that's Hillary Clinton. And she becomes president, and she got over two and a half million more votes than him, and it's perfectly logical, and we move forward. But likely they're Republicans, and they yeah. don't want to do that. So what they're saying is, no, Democrat electors, you all come to our side. Republican won the Electoral College. We're going to have a Republican president. We just don't want it to be this clown. So it's going to be Governor Kasich from Ohio. And could you get the Democratic electors to go, well, Kasich's better than Trump. And so, look, if you're upset by any of this kind of elitist stuff, I'm, I'm right there with you, brother. Yeah. Right. So let's just get rid of the goddamn Electoral College and d decide this by a popular vote, which is what is known as a democracy. Yeah. Now, if in this unique circumstance you think, no, hey, man, Electoral College is Electoral College, that means the electors get to decide. Well, then go to savedemocracy.org. They are pushing this idea and they're saying, hey, look, on December 19th, they go to the you can go to all the different state capitals where all the electors go to, to their own state capitals to actually vote. And and obviously before that you could pressure them, etc. So I don't know where I fall out on that, uh, but I do know a lot of people uh, like this plan yeah. and, and they want to push this forward. Uh, the place that I'm definite on is for God's sake, let's end the electoral college. Yeah. Whoever gets more votes wins in a democracy. We're supposed to be the oldest, greatest, best democracy. What kind of a democracy do we have when 40% of our elections in this century have been invalidated, have gone yeah. against the popular will? Yeah, I honestly feel like, I mean, there is the legislative plan to uh, to basically subvert the Electoral College without getting rid of it that we, that we talked about, the 11 states and the District of Columbia have signed on for, where if they got enough states to agree to it, where they had 270 votes in the Electoral College, it wouldn't effectively exist. But only 11 states have signed on to it, all of them are blue states. I think that we need to heavily push for that because I think that that is something that we can actually win on. People don't like this BS where the Electoral College ends up choosing. And honestly, the, the idea that every other Democratic president basically that wins ends up losing because they get it stolen from them. I mean, how can we have long-term progress if even when we choose a person, they don't end up winning? And we just see it happening time and time again. And honestly, it's starting to look systemically like we might expect this more in the future. If the states end up aligning in future elections the way they did now, I mean, the numbers are going to be shifted a little bit from state to state in terms of, in comparison to how they did now. But do we have any reason to believe that the 2.4 million vote lead that Hillary Clinton has now? I mean, what if a Democrat has a 3 million vote next, is that going to be enough to overturn? We honestly don't know at this point. Now, if you don't know this fact, this will enrage you. Do you know that Democrats got more votes for the presidency in this election? That you know, right? Uh, they got more votes in the House, and they are, have, and the Republicans have a solid lock on number of uh, representatives in the House. And the Democrats also got more votes in the Senate, and the Republicans control the Senate. So in none of those three branches of our government, about two branches and two houses within one branch, do the Democrats control, even though they won more votes in every single one of those, in the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And we call this a democracy. And I would probably add that were you to go down the line of how should the Supreme Court rule on this issue, how should they rule on this issue, countries of a liberal country, but we're about to get a hardcore right-wing Supreme Court.
How do we get here? We got it by a rigged system, ironically. Yeah. And it's rigged by the powerful, not the powerless. Yeah. Desperation is clinging to me Desperate times make for desperate deeds You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed, angry, and motivated, it is time to take action. Today's activism tell the Electoral College to reject Trump and vote with the people. Now, I'm not here to give you false hope. It is, by all accounts, very unlikely that enough Electoral College electors will change their vote and keep Trump from becoming the next president. However, just because something is unlikely or unprecedented doesn't mean it can't happen. I mean, just look at the results of the election. Regardless of the outcome, what we do between now and Inauguration Day matters. We need to show Trump, his cronies, the Republicans backing him, the mainstream media, and the rest of the dumbfounded world that the majority of this country rejects Trump and everything he stands for. We need to show them that he does not have a mandate. And how do we do that? We get in the streets and we let our voices be heard. So in the early morning of Monday, December 19th, the day the Electoral College will cast their votes and truly end this election, make sure you're at your state capitol building to join Democracy Spring and millions of your fellow Americans. Democracy Spring of Get Money Out of Politics fame is organizing rallies at the state capitol buildings in all 50 states on the 19th to call on the electors to vote their conscience and protect our democracy. Tell everyone you know and bring everyone you know. The size of these crowds matters. Head over to savedemocracy.org to get the details on the Democracy Spring December 19th action at a state capitol building near you and RSVP today. But wait, there's actually more. There's not much time left, but before December 19th, you can actually write directly to the electors themselves. DirectElection.org is a website put together by a guy from New York who, like millions of others, is terrified of Trump presidency. The website's just a tool. It gives you everything you need to send polite, persuasive, actual physical mail to 273 Trump-pledged electors, or as many as you can afford the postage for. This well-organized site has everything you need to make this a simple process. It has ready-to-print customizable mail merge documents in Microsoft Word, and a set of ready-to-print Avery standard 5160 labels for envelopes. All you have to do is download, add your name and address, and customize the letters if you want. Then just print, sign, and mail. The standard letter is respectful, but clearly points out the duty of the Electoral College, and yes, it quotes Hamilton, and why Trump is unfit for the office and will likely be impeached. Materials and costs of postage are on you, and you will probably need to pay extra for rush service to make sure the letters get there in time, but everything else is at your fingertips for free. Again, the website is directelection.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this 
and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if doing everything you possibly can to protect democracy and reject a Trump presidency is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling the Electoral College to stop Trump and vote with the people via social media so that others in your network can take action too. Stand up, fight back, there is absolutely no time to lose. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. We're going to turn back to that good old presidential election and the entirely strange animal that is the Electoral College. Now, Hillary Clinton, of course, won the popular vote by 2.7 million votes and counting. And yet on December 19th, the state electors will cast their votes for Donald Trump. There are various movements afoot, actually, to stop that from happening. And one of them is a push by these so-called Hamilton electors. This is a small group of electors who are seeking to be unbound by the state requirements in their state, requiring that they vote as their state voted in the election. One of the legal thinkers supporting this effort is Carolyn Shapiro. She's a professor of law and co-director of the Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States at Chicago Kent College of Law. She served as Illinois Solicitor General from 2014 to this year. First of all, welcome to Amicus, Carolyn. Thank you for having me. And can you explain to people who are hearing this phrase for the first time who the Hamilton electors are and, and what they want? Sure. Uh, the Hamilton electors are a group of electors, that is, the people selected by the voters on November 8th, but who will ultimately select the president on December 19th. The Hamilton electors are a smaller group of those folks who are opposed to Donald Trump becoming president. They're originally a group of Democratic electors who are willing to vote for a compromise Republican if Republican electors will also not vote for Donald Trump. The idea is that Donald Trump poses a unique threat to the country and that for that reason, they are proposing to do this rather extraordinary thing. And for those of us who have no idea how you get to be an elector, uh, some of them are young. I think folks are have this notion that uh, electors are just, I don't know who, but how, how do you get to be an elector in a state? Well, it really varies from state to state. But generally, the parties uh, figure out who they'd like to have the electors. Sometimes I think uh, they choose real party loyalists and local elected officials. But really, uh, it can be anybody. There are no requirements in the Constitution to be an elector. And just to be perfectly clear, for instance, in the Colorado uh, instance where we have two electors, the state went for Hillary Clinton, right? Their nine electoral votes go to Clinton. They're saying, no, we want to be freed up from the burden of having to vote for Clinton, even though we're Clinton supporters. We want to defect from the thing we thought we wanted in order to give this gig to someone like John Kasich, right? That's right. Their, their position is that the electors have a responsibility to protect the country from somebody who is a demagogue, somebody who is uniquely unqualified, who might be under 
the influence of a foreign government. Those are all the criteria that Alexander Hamilton himself set forth in his justification for having an electoral college. And they believe that the way to do that is to work with Republican electors to find somebody else who would be a responsible compromise candidate. Now, Colorado, like a number of other states, about half the states have laws that purport to bind the electors to whoever it is that won the vote in their state or whatever the nominee of the party that they were nominated by. Um, Colorado has such a law, and the Colorado electors are challenging that law as violating the Constitution. The reason they're doing that is because there are laws like this in some other states, and some of those states uh, went for Trump. They're also doing it so that they can keep up their end of the bargain that they're willing to strike, uh, which is to vote for a Republican as opposed to voting for Hillary Clinton. But it's fair to say, right, that in some states, for instance, in Washington state, the punishment for being a, quote, faithless elector is a civil penalty up to one thousand dollars in Colorado. The punishment is you're just disqualified and they pick a new elector. So your your electors are up in some cases against very draconian punishments Uh, across the boards. This looks like a really, really tough fight. I think it, uh, it's actually not as tough as it might first appear. The Constitution is pretty clear about how the division of responsibility operates when it comes to choosing the president. The Constitution gives the responsibility for figuring out how to choose the electors to the states. And the states have all decided to do that by means of popular vote. But once the electors are chosen, the Constitution doesn't give the states themselves or any state officials any uh, the obligations, responsibilities, duties, or control over what the electors do. And it really would fly in the face of the explanation that uh, certainly Alexander Hamilton gave for the Electoral College to allow the states to step in and say, no, you can't do what really uh, in an extraordinary situation is necessary for the country. So what the Hamilton electors are essentially arguing for is to be allowed to do what Federalist 68 says, which is use your discretion, right? You just, you know, search your conscience and figure out what is best for the country. That's what they're seeking. Uh, but it seems to me that we have a fairly settled policy in this country that's gone on for a really long time that doesn't allow for that. So it just feels as though what they're asking for is so radical uh, and would displace so much, uh, you know, history, whether it's constitutional law or not. It seems like it's asking for a very, very big departure from what we've always understood their role to be. Well, it certainly would be unprecedented, and it certainly is not what anybody would ordinarily expect. That's that's absolutely true. Um, but if you think about it this way, imagine that the presumptive president-elect committed a serious crime after the election, or it became clear after the election that uh, in some way that was really undisputable that the presumptive president-elect was enthralled to a foreign government, for example, or became incapacitated in some way. We would expect electors in that situation to exercise their discretion and select a more appropriate or capable candidate. Now, of course, we don't want electors running around doing this every time there's a presidential election. There's a reason why the people vote on November 8th or the Tuesday in November But you have to ask what will happen otherwise. And Donald Trump is demonstrating that he is a uniquely dangerous individual to be in the White House. Just to give an example, 
He has been skipping his intelligence briefings, getting on the phone with foreign leaders, foreign leaders of countries that are themselves nuclear powers or that are in some kind of tense relationship with nuclear powers, um, and, and saying things that are really, uh, at best, uh, inconsistent with United States foreign policy as developed over a period of decades. So there's just an element of incredible recklessness in what he's doing that has nothing to do with policy and has nothing to do with whether or not the person in office should be a Republican or a Democrat. It really has to do with the danger that this individual poses to all of us. We just heard clips today from On the Media stamping out the myth of voter fraud. The broadcast had Ari Berman on to discuss voter suppression in the wake of the election. The Young Turks commented on Republicans actually gloating about suppressing the black vote. Tom Hartman spoke with Mark Crispin Miller about how to fix our broken voting system. Samantha B. on Full Frontal discussed the big lie of voter fraud. The Young Turks discussed the first Republican Hamilton elector to break ranks with Trump. Our activism today is in support of the movement pushing the Electoral College to stop Trump. And finally, we just heard Amicus from Slate speaking with one of the organizers of the so-called Hamilton electors. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now... We'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan, your Double Down member from Connecticut calling in. Um, I've been listening to your 10 Ways to Resist Trump podcast, as you suggested, and kind of got stuck there at number one. I'm a college graduate. My handwriting stinks. My spelling stinks. And that's okay. I can write a letter and I can get one to a senator, but I get stuck on the content, being able to express in a intelligent way the details of um, my concerns and um, what I would say the general concerns that I think we all have are. And in listening to that podcast, they talk about how signing the online petitions really only count as one piece, where each letter also counts as one. But they also talked about how posting something on Google gives an alert. And so I had a thought and a suggestion that might help me and everyone else is that maybe there's a blog that Best of the Left could have created on Google that when people write a letter like this, they could, you know, type it up as well and put it on that blog that would call out those senators as well and congressmen so that they would get those alerts. And it would also share the content for the rest of the listeners where they can borrow and, and, and use some of the same information that they identify with. Um, there's so much to write and complain and, and advocate for that it kind of gets lost, to me anyway, in a, um, in a volume of information. And a three-page letter I don't think is going to be helpful, but um, a concise standard, he look, these are my talking points type of letter I think would. So that's my thought. Welcome to discussion. Thanks. Stay awesome. Hey, Jay, it's Andrew from Chicago. I just got done listening to the How to Debate Friends and Influence People uh, episode. One thing that sort of struck me from the entire episode is that it mostly dealt with reframing arguments based on uh, appeals to emotion. I'm thinking of the first clip where it talks about mentioning America a bunch of times, and that'll make people change their mind about 
gay marriage or appeals to logic and that's the how to change someone's mind or how to change my mind episode talking about or clip talking about reframing it in terms of bullet points and making clear concise cogent arguments and sort of logically slow but what wasn't mentioned very much were appeals to authority and how they influence the way that people will reframe the way that they think about arguments from the uh, in the first place so part of what strikes me as that being odd is it's very difficult to change someone's mind about something if they get their facts from a place that they already feel like has more credibility than you know other sources of facts the thing that made me think about calling was how on Thursday there was a public policy poll that was put out about how Trump voters and particularly Trump voters would think certain things that are contrary to the facts more so than Republicans generally, Hillary Clinton voters, Democrats generally. Things like employment going up or down, for instance. Things that are just like actual facts. Like there's a number that you can point to. And Trump voters, based on the fact that they were Trump voters, would have a much, much higher correlation with thinking that unemployment had actually gone up under Obama. Whereas Republicans generally would think the fact that it had in fact gone down. And since the whole entire purpose of the episode is how do you engage with people that voted for Trump in a way to convince them, the big thing that the entire episode missed is they believe things that are just undeniably false. And there's really no way to get around it because the reason that they think them is because people like Trump, authority figures that they value more than anyone else are telling them that those facts are true. The only way that I can see that you get around that is to undermine the authority figure. But it's difficult to figure out how to undermine that authority figure when <laughs> that authority figure is out there contradicting all the facts that you could use to undermine that authority figure. Thanks, Jay. Love the show. Bye. Hey, Jay and folks. This is Eli from Northern California. I have to say that the last episode, the one about uh, how to influence people and not lose too many friends, was freaking amazing. Really made me think. Um, I remember watching that TED talk so long ago and thinking how insightful it was, and just this has really put them to useful, useful terms. And what I was imagining is that there, there's probably debate teams out there on conservative campuses that have maybe already done this work for us by debating these issues from a more conservative standpoint and have these talking points set up. Um, so I would love to hear if uh, anyone has those ready to go, <laughs> ready to use, put in the elevator speech. Okay, thank you so much. Keep up the great work, y'all. Okay, bye. Hey, Jay, Ryan from Phoenix, calling in to explain something in a way that I think that uh, bridges the gap between liberals and conservatives. I'll use pre uh, President-elect Trump's carrier experience of how there's something that's very disappointing that I haven't seen covered very much in the news with regards to that. And it's a breakdown between policy and politics. And we can all 
get all up in a fury over politics, but really what this breaks is a broken element of is the broken aspects of policy and how the Trump administration does not seem like it is invested in, in creating policy or talking policy much at all. Even the quote of, we're going to take this, these types of opportunities case by case without giving you the American public policy on how we're implementing these strategies is devastating. And let me break down why. It should resonate with conservatives, the idea that it's not in the American public's or American enterprise interest to have something where the president is having such a strong influence over picking winners and losers, especially without a strong criteria. So every policy should have a pretty good purpose, purpose statements. It should be then backed up with criteria on how, whether or not a company meets these purpose statements, and then a process to evaluate that criteria. And then uh, if everything seems to fit there, then some required findings to make sure that it is in fact meeting the intent, those purpose statements of the policy in the first place, and then an outcome, and then a way to record that outcome. So that's what a good policy should do. And when you actually write it out, it becomes very transparent. And it becomes a way that is justifiable on how that policy is implemented and who gets the benefit from that policy. And everybody knows going in whether or not they have a good shot at qualifying for being uh, accepted into whatever benefit comes out of that policy. And without this transparent system, a policy, not just the politics of we're going to shoot from the hip case by case, it actually inspires liberty and the pursuit of free enterprise because without it, you always have that angst of within the free market system of not really being able to operate with much confidence. Policies create confidence in whether or not a company can feel like they can benefit from a certain policy. Without that policy, it's too arbitrary and would diminish the confidence within the market. So hopefully people understand the importance of policy coming in from that perspective. And I think the argument can resonate with both liberals and conservatives. Thanks for all you do, Jay. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or detailed explanation of something to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick note for existing members. If you already access the members-only uh, bonus content podcast feed, then you know that that is a password-protected feed. You can't get to it unless you are a member and you have the password credentials. And just the note is that I'm making minor changes to those feeds, uh, which includes changing those passwords. So if you're an existing member, first, look to see if you got an email from me with the new password information in the email. If you didn't get that or can't find it or whatever, uh, then go to the members details page. Uh, you can find that. Just go to the contribute page, the exact same place where you signed up for a membership. 
And right there, there's a link to the details page for existing members. Go there. You have to be logged in and uh, registered as a member in good standing to get to that page. And that also has all of the details about uh, the new login credentials. Failing all of that, uh, make sure you know your password. Do the I forgot my password thing. Failing that, then go ahead and send me an email and we'll try to get it sorted out. Secondly, today, I would love to hear your responses with our new task in mind, explaining something that you may have heard on today's show, but explaining it in a different way than it was originally described, and double points if you can explain it in a way that would would appeal to conservatives' ideals of loyalty, authority, sanctity, and probably throw in patriotism in there. Uh, If you can argue voting rights for conservatives, if you can argue abolishing the Electoral College for conservatives, anything along those lines, I would love to hear it. Because, you know, there's a big fight going on right now to try to abolish or effectively abolish uh, the Electoral College. And some are concerned that if we try to focus on this fight right now, then conservatives will block it for partisan reasons. All the more reason for us to figure out how to argue those points in such a way that it appeals to conservatives. So if you have thoughts on any of that, please, as always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Uh, Just remember to keep using that Amazon link. If you're doing some holiday shopping, you can find it in the sidebar of my website. I promise you it helps the show almost certainly more than you realize. Uh, So if you have holiday shopping that you're going to be doing on Amazon, uh, please take time to just stop over and bookmark that Amazon link on my site first, and then shop as normal. It costs you nothing extra and enormously helps the show. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our sad stories and wonder what we're doing. Can't see past our sad stories and forget who it is we're fooling.